Listener Production. Hello and welcome to Keeping Good Company, the podcast helping you build business success through culture and leadership. In this six-part series, we'll bring you insights from some of Australia's most successful business leaders about how they've built and developed culture. You'll be hearing a lot of that word in this podcast, and you'll also be hearing a lot of the word leadership. I probably don't need to tell you that the business sector saw huge change in the last couple of years thanks to COVID. You know, we started working from home, doing business meetings over Zoom, perhaps in your PJs in some cases. And the businesses that came through at the best had strong teams in place, led by people with the skills to adapt quickly. Because leadership isn't something you're just born with. It's a muscle that needs to be trained. To get you up to speed with culture and leadership, we'll be chatting with Corinne Cantor, Head of Consulting, and David Byram, Managing Director from Human Synergistics, the people bringing you this podcast. You could call them culture and leadership experts. They have decades worth of experience helping individuals reach their potential, developing effective leaders, turning groups into innovative teams and creating positive workplace cultures. And they're here to share their knowledge with you. So let's get started. Welcome, David and Corinne. It is such a joy to be talking with you and to be finding out about culture. Because to me, that sounds like such a sort of grown-up professional term, but it isn't necessarily, is it? I mean, David, what does culture mean for you? That's a fantastic question, Jess, and it's great to be with you here today. Culture, to me, it's ingrained in the way we do things. And we talk about it at a societal level. We do certain things at a society level. We all put our clothes on when we come to the studio today, which is good for all of us. Um, Well, I'm glad you did. (laughs) I'm really glad you did. Yes. (laughs) And if we broaden uh, and go to an organisational context, it's actually the way we operate within our organisation. So it's the way we make decisions. It's the way we involve people. It's the way we communicate. It's the way we solve problems together. So culture is, at its core, it's the way we do things around here. It's the way stuff gets done. And Corinne, why is it important to you that we get culture right within organisations? I think the reason it's so important to me is because so many people work in organisations every day and culture is really the atmosphere, the tone, the environment that people work in and it can make you feel powerful and potent and realise your potential, or it can make you feel like you're in a threat state and you've got to be defensive and you've got to be on your guard. And no one's served by being in a threat state, not the organisation, not the individual. So I think it's about being healthy, constructive, creating constructive workplaces where people can be at their best, because that's how the organisation gets the best for its customers and the community all round. Um, So I think it's really about making sure that we help people realise their potential. You talk about the importance of reaching potential and and I think about workplaces that I've been in over the years. I've worked in media for, goodness me, over 30 years and when I first began, the culture was very, and I'll generalise, but it was very blokey and there was a sense that 
you had to fit into that. And for someone like me, I'm not blokey. Like, I'm sort of a girl's girl. And it was difficult to try and find myself within these organisations. And there was various times when I thought, is this actually the right career for me if I'm meant to fit this mould? Is that a familiar sort of thing that you find, David? It's a very familiar thing, Jess. And we see in organisations, and we talk about the behaviours at play in the organisation. So some behaviours, and let's try and drill down on blokey, right? So we've got to do things to fit in with others, right? Be accepted as part of the crowd, stay within our swim lanes, avoid making those tough calls because we might just, you know, stand out in the crowd a little bit too much. And we would define that as a very passive defensive culture. And when I drill deep in that organisation, that organisation's vulnerable because the world's moving, but everyone's trying to keep everything the same. Equally, there can be a defensive culture that's quite aggressive defensive. What happens here is the organisations say, we've got to be in control, we've got to dominate. You have to stand out in this crowd. For you to succeed in here, you need to be top of the hill and make sure you push everyone down that hill. And that organisation becomes quite volatile because you never know what you're going to get on any given day. Is today going to be a day that I might lose my job? Is today going to be a day that I get a big bonus? And I'm always on guard, so I'm still defensive. So both of those cultures are coming from a defensive lens. One is fit in and one is stand out. What we know and what through our research, we know that organisations that come from a point of constructive behaviours, more satisfaction orientated, we're going to make a difference together. We're going to grow. We're going to have conversations that allow us to be open with each other, share with each other, talk to each other. And most importantly, we're going to allow you to be you. We want you to bring who you are. And if you're not blokey, that's great because we want you just to be you in this organisation. And we define that as constructive. And we know organisations that live constructive from top to bottom and bottom to top because everyone plays a role in culture. Leaders play a bigger role, which we'll get to. But if we can live that across all levels, live those norms, live those expectations, the organisation will sustain. It'll grow and it will outperform everyone else in their sector. So, Corinne, human synergistics... You're about creating constructive workplaces, as David has just mentioned. How hard is that, though, when sometimes there is often resistance from above? Yeah. The employees know things need to change, but the bottom line, the business still might be successful. They still might be making money. So, you know, the bosses can say, well, actually, no, we don't need to do anything differently. Completely. And I think that that sometimes leaders can be a barrier to culture changing because they've been successful in the culture that exists. It's not always the case because sometimes you get new leaders and that's when they see that the culture's not conducive to productivity or morale is low. So sometimes a new leader will often see what an existing leader can't see. But often the existing leaders who may have made it in the culture have also come from being an employee that was in the pincer grip. So what you talked about is being in the blokey culture. I think that, you know, on the one hand, people want to fit in. They don't want to stand out. They want to do well. They want to be successful. But on the other hand, if you've got a culture that's defensive, it constantly puts people in position where they've got to make a choice. Me, who I am, how I want to show up versus what it's going to take for me. So it's a trade-off for people. So I think that a lot of leaders today understand that workplace cultures 
key and critical. So we don't have so much to make the argument to invest time and energy on culture. The issue that we have with leaders is to really hear the feedback from their people, is to understand that they can trust their people. Sometimes I think there's still the old lens of if we give employees their choices, they'll just want to, you know, they'll want holidays every day and they can't be trusted. So I think sometimes leaders are in an unenviable position of having to make a decision between what's going to be best for the greater good and also the pressure that they're under to actually deliver to their shareholders and, and their boards. For leaders, when they're resistant is often because they're in a dilemma. They haven't been able to understand how to break through some of the tensions that they're having to balance. So I think that the main thing with leaders to understand is all the research that we've done, we've got over 50 years of it, is that the more constructive their workplace culture is, the better the results. And it doesn't matter what you pull out, whether it's customer retention, whether it's engagement for employees, whether it's profit, whether it's growth, every business indicator, organisational indicator improves when they focus their attention on culture. And the thing that I always say to leaders is you're in a world where we're not in control of so much. Like if the pandemic showed us anything, is that change doesn't need our permission to happen. And so I think one of the beautiful things about workplace culture is it is within the control of leaders. It is about cause and effect. It is their effort making a difference. And once you get your culture right, it really is the gift that keeps on giving. Where we're at with the leaders at the moment is they know they have to invest their time and energy, but culture is also something that you've got to believe in. You've got to invest some faith And that's usually where leaders get a bit stuck. They want to see the proof up front, um, whereas it's something that you've got to work on. You've got to invest time and energy in. We'll talk about the pandemic shortly, but I want to talk more about leadership. It's hard, as, as you mentioned, Corinne, I think sometimes for leaders because they are, you know, stuck in the middle, so to speak. But David, it takes real bravery, doesn't it? I think for a leader to recognise, you know what, this isn't great, this culture here we need to make a difference, this is what we can do. It does. It takes courage. You've got to lean into it. You really have to lean into your culture. And Corinne mentioned something which I absolutely agree with, and it's change doesn't not need your permission to happen. And the world's moving. The world's moving fast. Tell me a little bit more about that, though. I, I like that phrase, change doesn't need your permission to happen. Yeah, so you think about it, and everybody listening with us today would have an Uber account a large percentage of those people would have booked into an Airbnb. No one actually went out to other and said, is it okay if we rent my property out and you don't go to a hotel? It just happened. And the world's moving fast. And all of a sudden people go, well, hang on, my market's changed. The world's moved. No one asked me, is it okay? Everyone's going to be disrupted. It's just a matter of when will you be disrupted. So now the question becomes, back to culture, culture is your only true competitive advantage. Because the only thing that's unique to your organisation is your people. And you want to harness the best possible performance out of your people. You want them to be the best they can be. So now the question I ask leaders is, are you in charge of your culture or is your culture in charge of you? Because you have a culture. You can turn a blind eye to it and ignore it. Therefore, you're being led by your culture. Or you can have the courage, the bravery to look at it head on and go, actually, I'm going to be in charge of my culture. And we're going to create a culture where everyone can be their best 
and we can make a difference for our employees, our customers, and our shareholders. And that's what we're really trying to do. So leaders are pivotal. Leaders role model. Leaders set the standard. Leaders create the expectations. One of the key things is that leaders directly impact culture. So as a leader, people look to me for signals. They look to me for cues. If they see me being blokey, and we'll get back to our blokey analogy and enforcing people to fit in, they won't step out of line. If they see that I'm open to challenge and I actually want to be challenged, they'll be more open to challenge me and ask me different questions. So now we're getting a culture that can grow and develop. Leaders also indirectly impact the culture. Subtly, you know, and a lot of people say it's the standard we walk past is the standard we accept. And it's tough being a leader. You're under observation 24-7. Now, I'm all for flexible working. And if you're working flexible because you left early today to go pick the kids up from school, see the play, do the sporting event, awesome. But the question now becomes, if you send an email at 11 o'clock at night and someone replied to that email at five past 11, do you reply now or do you hold it? If you reply, you've just set the tone that you always need to be on. If I'm on, you're on. Now, we know in the world today that we want to have balance, right? We want to enjoy life. So how do we do this as leaders? We've got to actually think about what I do and what I don't do. Leaders communicate. So what messages do they send down? Which is important, right? Every leader says, my job is about communication. Absolutely. But it's also about how you receive communication. So how do you take on board feedback? And it's interesting. The higher up we go and some of the research we've got, leaders say, I really want more feedback. Give me feedback. Uh-oh. <laughs> that Career could be dangerous, move. couldn't it? <laughs> uh, but interestingly, the feedback from their employees, their peers is, and I don't give them the feedback. They don't really want it. So we've got this disconnect, all right? So how aware are we really as leaders? Do we know what's going on? So leaders have a massive role to play. And I suppose also that agency, that sense of you do have power to change and sometimes you can feel that's not the way at all. When you talk there about about leaders and how they behave and that sort of trickle-down effect, it reminds me of a time when I was working at Channel 10 and the, the CEO, he was involved with a great organisation called um, Champions of Change and it was male CEOs basically standing up and saying, oh, I want to get more women into positions of power. And also what he would do, and I thought this was fantastic, is that he would make a point of leaving early two afternoons a week to go and pick his kids up from school. And because we could see our main boss doing that, it then gave everyone else permission to actually sort of say, I'm leaving early because I need to do this for my family. Because I think, for, especially for women, there's been this sense of we have to lead almost two lives in a way. We're sort of busy keeping the home fires burning, but then when we're at work, it's sort of, oh, no, I don't have any of those responsibilities. Absolutely. And that would have given him so much credibility because often leaders can say flexibility is important, we want to create an inclusive culture, but we're still setting meetings at 7am or we're setting them late. And so what um, David was saying was that leaders are always on and it's as much about what they haven't said and it's as much about what they're paying attention to and it's also about where they put their energy and their effort. So if you've got a CEO who's saying, 
I believe in this and their behaviour backs it up because people aren't silly. They're not just going to listen to what the leader says. They're not going to listen just to the rhetoric. They're going to make their own judgment based on what they see that leader do and how they interact with others. We are prepared to listen to others, but we're going to come to our own conclusions. And so when you have a leader take the afternoon off to pick up some kids or say, look, I can't make that meeting because I've got to go and care for my elderly parent, that means something. It means that they're human and that they have a life. And I think that that takes a lot of courage for women, I think, you know, if I think about myself, I've always also been of that um, generation where I was the only woman at the executive table. And you're constantly weighing up the choices. You're constantly trying to decide, should I speak up at this point because I don't agree? But if I do that, will it actually limit my career? And so I think the leaders in their own action behaviours, probably much more than they even realise, their action becomes symbols of the culture and what kind of, what is permissible, what's okay, what's not okay. And they're small gestures sometimes. I I was doing some work with the team. Uh, The leader had asked me to come in because the culture had seemed very conflicted. They were very unhappy. They weren't getting on. And the feedback that I was getting from the team was that they felt that their leader was really dismissive and always shutting them down. And so I shadowed the leader a day and I watched them and just looked at the interaction. Now, what they called shutting down came down to her checking her watch when they were in a team meeting. She had a number of pressures in terms of meetings back to back, but that symbol of checking the watch, they took down as being dismissive. If you were to ask her, she didn't intend to be dismissive. It was furthest thing from her mind, but it had this calamitous effect. And so often with leaders, it's not just about what they're conscious of doing, but part of our work is helping leaders to become more aware of how they are showing up and what is going on in their mindset that leads them to behave the way that they do, which then leads to the impact that they're having on the culture that they're setting, the tone. Let's talk more about the work that you do. How can an organisation make those changes that that stick and that are genuine? Because often I think we've all been a part of organisations that might pay lip service to, oh, this is what we do, but in fact it is nothing like that. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Where do you start, right? I think the very first thing is awareness. And and I say that because one of the biggest challenges that leaders have is the market's confused. And culture is the word of the millennium. If we pick up the paper today, there's probably four articles on culture, and they're probably not good articles, to be honest, around what's going on in terms of behaviours in organisations. But they get confused because they get confused by this word engagement. And engagement is not culture. And a lot of people will measure engagement and they'll talk about the engagement of their workforce. So what does that mean though? Explain that yeah. difference to me because I, I'm not, I don't know that difference. Yeah. So engagement is really about how we feel about the organisation. It's Technically, it's the average of how motivated am I in this organisation? Am I satisfied by the work I do? And do I intend to stay in this organisation? Now, the challenge in culture is the behaviours of play. 
The challenge, and we know, is some organisations can be highly engaged, all right? Their employees, and for a variety of reasons, they they have golden handcuffs, they're remunerated very well, it's a blokey environment, they feel they're with their people, so they're highly engaged. But the behaviours at play in those organisations are non-desirable. So for them to fit in this organisation, they're not spending time in the balance with the families we just spoke about. They're not sharing their thoughts with others. They're staying below the radar or it's a dog-eat-dog standout. So even though they're highly engaged, their behaviours are horrible and they're not supportive, they're not engaging. So engagement and culture are very different things. A quick way I'll describe it is, uh, and my boys are probably listening to this and they go, don't talk about us. But, you know, with anyone with children, you'd say, be more motivated in your studies. Put the effort into your studies. Wish you'd really give your discretion to those studies. Now, telling someone to be more motivated doesn't not make them more motivated. It's like nagging someone. That's like right. nagging does not work and, and <laughs> at it, all. It just doesn't create the change. No. So all of a sudden, telling them to be more motivated, be more satisfied, really get in there and do your, do your effort doesn't work. That's engagement. I'm asking someone to be more engaged. Doesn't work. How do I make someone more engaged? I've got to work on the systems, the practices, the behaviours at play. So how do we start? Where do we start? Recognise that engagement and culture are different. Measuring engagement alone will not change your culture. It's like measuring the outcome. If I really want to change my culture, I've got to work on the behaviours at play. So now I've got to start working on what are the expectations I set in the organisation? How do we live these expectations in the organisation? How do we reward each other in the organisation? How do we articulate our mission, our purpose, our philosophy? How do we communicate? And more, most importantly, what do I do as a leader? And I will say it's what do I do as a discrete leader at a unit level? CEOs have a massive impact, but my immediate leader has a bigger impact, particularly in a large organisation. What messages does my immediate leader send me? That to me sounds very simple, Corinne, <laughs> but, but is it really? Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. And I think what helps is the first thing that you need to do when you're trying to do culture work is you've got to create shared meaning. So everybody's got to be on the same page. The organisation's got to be really clear about who are we, what do we stand for, what do we value. When we talk about values and it's really about what do we see as being the most important thing that we want to live by. And I think in the way that the world's evolved, with all the technology and social media, people have an increasing respect for social responsibility. And so the organisation's got to be really clear in terms of who it is, what it stands for, why they matter. So if you didn't exist in the world, why would we miss you as an organisation? If you can build a story around that, a narrative that is meaningful to your people, that is a really important first step because your people have to be able to be inspired by the work that we do, the contribution that we make. So I think that's the first step. Also not easy because most organisations have hundreds of people that they're trying to inspire. But the best way to do that is what I what we call crowdsourcing. So once upon a time, it used to be top down. So the executives went off on a retreat. They climbed some mountains together. 
they had a road to Damascus moment and then they came back and they gave everybody the command. That's really old school. And a lot of employees are like, oh, oh. How lucky for some. <laughs> yeah. Good on them. Off they go. We're stuck that's here right. doing the hard work. That's right. Yeah. What you know, did they really do? That's right. yeah. What did they really do? <laughs> that's right. And, you know, how can I get some of that um, is what they're, they're normally thinking. But now it's really important to involve your people as early as possible and as often as possible. We have to start treating employees as if they're invested in the organisation's wellbeing. They are. You know, they want to continue working. They want to feel good about what they, they're doing. They have families. They've got bills. So they're totally invested. So one of the ways to do it is instead of trying to work it out for everybody, which is a trap that leaders can fall into, ask them, invite them, share the problem and ask them for what they think is the best way forward. We've done that with many organisations. What's been really interesting is typically we would say a large organisation might take a while to change their culture. But what we've learned in recent years is when you crowdsource your mission, you know, um, it doesn't have to be handing it all over because the leaders have to own it. What we found is the culture change changes more quickly because people have a greater sense of ownership. So shared meaning about who we are, what we do, why it matters, what we value, and then involving people in setting that is a really major first step in working on culture. You mentioned there too investment. You know, people need to feel invested in what they're doing. And also, I love that notion of the why. I think all of us really want to know why. <laughs> why are we doing this in our lives? Or why does this matter to me? Apart from just, I need to make some money and pay the mortgage. There has to be a bigger sense of purpose and meaning, doesn't there? Purpose is the word that's used like culture, right? It's the second word of the millennial. And it's purpose at multiple levels because we all want to make a difference. Like one of the inherent beliefs that I have is that people inherently want to make a difference and people are inherently good. And so they have this individual drive, this individual aspiration to make a difference in the world. So my individual purpose, and then how does that link to the team purpose that I'm in? I'm not a solo contributor. There are individual contributors, but I'll still be in part of a broader team then that team, as we ripple that out, gets to the organisation. So all of a sudden now, what's the organisational purpose? And how do I fit with that organisational purpose? What's the link between me and the organisation? So Crin's 100% right. When she talks about this crowdsourcing, how do we actually build this momentum that I can see that the organisation's making an incredible difference and I'm part of that? And we work with some organisations that, have a massive impact on society. And it's sad because their employees don't see the value they bring. But without the organisation, society would struggle. But their employees see no value in the work that they do and how it connects. So one of the biggest challenges, how do we see this straight line connection between my activity, my work, and the people I work with to the greater good of the organisation? And that's why organisations are now starting to get a greater handle on their social purpose, and how do we make this difference to grow? Yes, and and be open. And also, too, I, I think another really important point that I feel 
is being vulnerable. Yes. And often, mm. Corinne, people hear the word vulnerable and they think, oh, no, that, that's weakness. No, organisations can't be weak. But to me, vulnerability is the very opposite of that, isn't it? When you can be vulnerable, I think it's been an idea that's been really popularised and it is really important because it's about showing your humanity and being open about our limitations, our needs, and leaders find that really difficult because if you admit that you have needs, then suddenly you feel exposed, you feel like you are weak because you're not on top of it all. So vulnerability is, I think leaders have to find their own way there. At the same time, you know, I hear so many people say, oh, leaders just aren't vulnerable and they're saying then, you know, their eyes aren't watering up and they're not, you know, tearing. So it's not about overexposure. It's really about being authentic around what's true for you. And I think there's a tension for leaders sometimes is to show that they're human, that they don't always have the answer, that they can ask for help. These are ways to show vulnerability, that they can say they've made a mistake. I can't tell you, Jessica, how many times we hear we need a safe to fail culture. Who talks about failure? That's one of the best ways of helping people feel safe and giving people permission about making mistakes and learning from them, but nobody talks about it. And leaders, it's like an anathema to talk about the fact that I might have made a mistake or got something wrong. It is super important for leaders to be able to say, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, I need help, I really appreciate what you've done, thank you. These are all very simple but really important ways of showing authenticity as well as vulnerability you know, I always say with a leader, people, my experience is your people don't expect you to be perfect. They want you to be congruent. So that if you say that integrity and respect is important, they want to see you demonstrate respect. They want to see you demonstrate honesty. I know of so many people where they've said to me, you know, I'm thinking of a financial CFO chief financial officer, and he he used to flare up very quickly, go to temper very quickly. And his people said to me one day, he really is trying and he goes beetroot red and we can see that he's struggling. But you know what? We really appreciate that he's giving it a go. He doesn't always get it right. So I think leaders need to learn to trust that if they show a bit of themselves, that if they show a bit of vulnerability, that they can trust their people will hold that with great respect. And it's about walking your talk and also to listening to you there, Corinne, giving people permission. All of us have our stuff that we're struggling with. And I think often when we look up to leaders, if we can identify a part of ourselves in what they're going through, you have better connection you're more inclined to go that extra mile for them and you feel part of a team, not totally. not just on your own. Absolutely. I was with a group of leaders last week and I asked them to bring to mind a leader in their life who had had a massive impact on them and it could have been a positive impact or it could have been a negative impact. It didn't matter. Then I got them to talk about what was it about that leader that had such a lasting impact on them, whether it was good or bad. 
And when we did this, you know, prodigious list on all these characteristics, I asked them what did they notice about that list and what came out loud and clear that it was nothing about what the leader did, it was a, everything about how the leader made them feel. So whether they had a negative impact, which cut deep, or a positive impact, which was inspirational. And so I think that this issue around vulnerability and with leadership, let's take a moment to understand what people value about leaders and it's about how they make you feel and whether they inspire greatness or whether they make you feel diminished. And it's really a leader who understands themselves and is able to give a little bit of themselves will have people that will follow them anywhere. Oh, yes. I mean, I can think about bosses that I've worked with who, because of that, I, I'm wedded by their side and other bosses who I'm like, nah, uh. Are you going left? I'm going to go right. Yeah, you're not one of my people. I'm not yeah. interested. We, we talk about my people, right? We all care. We want to make a difference. And the vulnerability, it's an important part of it, right? The word I like to add to that is curious. As we look at leaders and we're talking about leaders and what they create, Leaders that are truly curious actually ask questions they don't know the answer to. So what I would say is listen to the next time someone asks a question. Have they already framed up the possible responses? Are they really exploring with me? All right? Because then they're going to be more vulnerable because they're open. And being able to, as a leader, stand there in the position, in the moment, hold your frame, and whatever someone shares with you, you can be empathetic. You can learn from it. You can be with them. And then they're going to be more open, all right? And you'll learn so much more. So curious is my word for 2022. I love that word, David, curious, because that's what we want our kids to be curious. We teach our kids to be curious and also for them to take risks in their learning, to be prepared to get something wrong. And so obviously it makes sense, doesn't it, then in the workplace that we want people who are prepared to kind of make a mistake but it might lead to the most amazing innovation. Exactly right. And, you know, we've all had the scenario where someone comes in and says, I've got a great idea. And let's just say that idea is less than desirable. But that person inherently thought that idea was brilliant. They don't come to you and go, I've got a great idea, in the back of their mind going, this idea is horrible. <laughs> this idea is the worst idea ever. It's crap. But I'm going to go <laughs> tell them that this idea is great. It just doesn't happen. But so they inherently think it's a good idea. So now you as a leader are thinking, I don't think that's a good idea. Why the hell are they coming to me with that idea? So now you've got a position. Do you become critical and say, oh, that's a crap idea, get out of my office, and you're thinking to yourself, why did I hire that person? Or do you come from the position was, they think that's a good idea. What do they know that I don't know? What are they thinking about? What other criteria are they looking at that maybe I'm not looking at? And then okay, let's explore that with them and understand because now my role as a leader becomes the educator and I might actually actually teach them different objectives, different parameters, and we might actually mould their idea and take part of it but not all of it. And I would say we might actually learn something and change our mind. So, you know, three words for leaders when they're in that situation, tell me more. It's my favourite three words. Tell me more. Like if you're stuck and you're trying to decide how do I respond to this person? They think it's a great idea and you're not sure. The easiest thing to do is just tell me more. 
That's about inviting curiosity. And I find sometimes I start off with thinking, I don't think that's a good idea. But then I think, well, maybe there's something new. Maybe there's something, they know something that I don't know. So I think either I'm going to learn more and help shape a different, maybe it's a third idea that we come up with together, or it changes my mind. And I think, okay, if there's nothing to lose or not much to lose, let's give it a run. Let's see how it goes. But it's about the invitation to explore versus to come straight to an outcome. In a world that's full of social media, there's, uh, we're very good at curating an image. We're very good at putting together an image that we want people to see. And so that in itself creates more pressure to be something that we may not always feel all the time. And so there's curiosity, but it's also about spontaneity. So when we feel comfortable in our own skin, when we're prepared to give others trust, we're more able to trust our own responses. I think that's an important element in helping leaders to back themselves and support others so that we're not constantly editing ourselves. Obviously, we have to be pragmatic, but I think part of what gets in the way of vulnerability, part of what gets in the way of curiosity is we feel like we have to know everything. And And we're afraid. We're afraid, yes. We're afraid of being judged or felt less of or silly or stupid. I've got to say, though, I'm now almost 52 and I love getting older because, yes, <laughs> I still... It isn't it? I, I, I still care what people think, but I care less about what people think. And that, for me, totally is so empowering. And also, you then are open. Mm. And as you were mentioning, David, the importance of being open to things, listening to not shutting things down. And I, and I love that. What, though, I do want to get to is, is COVID. Mm. And obviously, that's had a huge impact on workplaces because people's workplaces have moved to home and that's also changed culture at work. What do you see, I'll start with you, David, as those biggest challenges for people and organisations? It's changed the world. And let's think about it. Are we going to look at it from a defensive lens or a constructive lens? So let's go straight to constructive. It's changed the world for the better. So people are now probably got a little bit more time at home all right, and and getting that balance right. I think what we need to understand is people are still people. We're still human beings. As a person, I still require that level of social connection and social. we know social connection is important. So if we link COVID and culture, what's going on? From my perspective, I think what we've seen is organisations that are more constructive have actually led the response to COVID very well. Organisations who are more defensive have tried to manage COVID. And I use those words very deliberately in terms of leading a response versus managing COVID. And you can't manage COVID. What I would say is that organisations need to work harder. And it's interesting, and I've been asking this question of some leaders I've been working with, when was the last time you rang someone on Teams, Zoom, WebEx, whatever platform you're going to be on, and just said, how are you? which we would do when we were together connected. You'd walk past someone at their station, you'd say, how are you? What's going on for you? How was your weekend? But now we're in this 2D world of Teams and Zoom, et cetera, 
would generally ring someone and straight on task. Can you help me with this? Where are you at with this? And it's generally meetings back to back to back to back. So we're actually going to be a bit more deliberate and we're going to work a bit harder to actually get the culture we want. And just because you had this inclusive, creative culture pre-COVID, don't assume you've got it now. So you're still going to be more deliberate and work harder at it. So what does the future of work look like? And that's probably a podcast on its own topic. Oh, I think it is. I think it is. Corinne, I I do like that notion of what David was saying, sort of some of those silver linings of COVID and what it's meant Mm. for work. Mm. I think what's been fantastic is that um, we're more human, you know, so people are taking meetings in little butler kitchens and they've got pets and they've got kids. I ran a webinar and um, there was a one person in the end who was on it. So we ran it anyway and I was getting her to do an activity and she, I could see her mouthing to someone and then her husband came on screen and said, can I ask you a question about that? And I said, <laughs> sure, wonderful. come on in, you know, and then the kids came on board and so I think what's happened, the positive side is that we acknowledge that the whole person they have a family or even they might be living alone and they need more connection or that there's pets, there are things that go wrong. And so I think, you know, we talked a bit about the pressure to feel like you've got a certain image. I think COVID's been great for allowing people to be more of themselves more visibly in front of people and it's not seen as unprofessional. So I think that's been fantastic. And I know so many CEOs who've loved those cameo appearances of kids and dogs and so on. I had one little story. I had one horrible Zoom moment where I was with a client and a magpie accidentally found itself in our my home office and was smashing up against windows. And I, I was in that moment, do I get up? Do I get down? But And I was thinking this was a new client and uh, to be honest, I wasn't particularly worried, but they were laughing and laughing and laughing. They were feeling really unhappy because they were in Melbourne, so I had lots of lockdown. So I feel like there's this increased compassion, increased humanity and increased idea, a broader sense of what professionalism is and it isn't how you look, it's really about how you show up. So I think that's been the positive impact. The other positive impact I think that we've had because we've had to use technology is people have in some ways had much more access to their leaders. So leaders can beam into people's home offices at scale. There were a lot more town halls happening. There were a lot more updates happening. There was a lot more communication and a lot more sort of what we call skip level. So where a leader might talk to the people below their direct reports. So I think there's been a lot of positivity. There's been, from a health and wellbeing point of view, it's probably a double-edged sword a little bit, but I know that people at home have a lot more elasticity in terms of how they plan their day. The downside can be that sometimes there's no boundary. And so we used to talk about work-life balance, whereas now I think it's work-life integration and so we've got to find a way to find a rhythm that suits us. Some of what we've we've lost that we need to think about how we recover is this incidental bumping into people. You know, you don't bump into people on Zoom or on MS Teams and so you've got to ring them up and, you know, say, I, you know, ring up a few people and say, hey, I'm just bumping into you, you know, 
let's pretend that we've just bumped and we're <laughs> yes. going for a coffee. So I think there are certain things that can happen spontaneously when you're in a room with someone. The other thing that I think's happened is organisations, in order for working from home to work, you have to move from a hours-based model of leading people to an outcomes-based model. And so I think that means that trust has probably gone up. I don't think we're completely through it. I think we still have, you know, some tensions where that hasn't happened, where the, the outcomes aren't clear. I think it can be a bit difficult, confusing for employees and leaders to understand how to navigate, you know, that working from home. But I think there has been some positives. David and Corinne, I think I'd like to come and work for your organisation. <laughs> it sounds like this wonderful place to be. We'd be happy to have you. Yes, we would <laughs> welcome you. Come anytime. <laughs> for people who are listening, who are thinking, what can I do? We, we've covered a lot of ground in our chat. Are there perhaps one or two points or even words from each of you that you could say, this is what you need to th- be thinking about? Corinne, I'll allow you to go first. Look, I think the most important thing that any leader can do is to ask this question. What kind of culture would get the best out of you? It's a very good start. Love it. And David? Awesome. I like that. Um, I think I'm going to leave with two thoughts. Uh, Number one is really build your understanding that culture engagement are not the same thing. And if you can get to that page, you're going to be more than halfway there. And I think I'll leave with uh, my favourite quote from uh, DB. Are you in charge of your culture or is your culture in charge of you? Thanks, Jess. It's been awesome. Oh, thank you both so much. I've learned so much. And I think for me, what is so exciting is it's all within our grasp. It doesn't have to be this highfalutin idea. It is possible to make change. So thank you both for being a big part of that change. And I'm so looking forward to hearing from more of our guests about how they are making change within their organisations. Pleasure. Thanks, Jess. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keeping Good Company. Join us next time for a chat with Mary Lamonis, the Chief People and Sustainability Officer at the REA Group, as we talk about why culture doesn't always live in the building. This podcast is a listener production brought to you in partnership with Human Synergistics, hosted by me, Jess Rowe, produced by Kelsey Menzies. Executive producer is Todd Stevens, with audio production by Kelly Falston. Listener.